Hey there, Tieflings and Centaurs. Welcome to the season premiere of Campaign Spotlight. I'm Production Master Riley. And I'm Dungeon Inspector Jake. This week, we're chatting with Mike, who's an old friend who's been running tabletop games for many years. We'll be talking about building a world for your own campaign. We're excited to get to share our very first episode with you. In this episode, Mike discusses the map of his campaign setting. Check out the show notes if you'd like to follow along. Let's roll initiative. It's difficult to hear all of the cleric's words over the warm wind, so the large gathering of mourners slowly shuffle closer together. Barely a day's ride away from the equator in early summer, and still the sun is struggling to claw its angry way through the cloud cover. But the sky has no agenda, and no real promise of rain threatens this congregation of strangers. This patch of greenery, perched at the edge of a dizzying cliff that overlooks the eastern ocean, would normally be scorched mercilessly at this hour. But not today. Today, it is as if the elements themselves bowed their heads in deference to the man about to be lowered into the ground forever. Fitting that the man who traveled and befriended the world in life would have it come to him in death, in the form of diverse and grieving crowd who have little in common, save for their shared bond over one eccentric dark elf named Paolo Ribeiro. Mike, thanks so much for coming on Campaign Spotlight. Um, so tell us a little about... Uh, Okay. I'm oh getting angry looks from Riley. Let me try that again. Sure. Mike, thank you so much for coming on Campaign Spotlight. Yeah, thanks for having me. For sure. So can you tell us a little bit about this campaign? Yeah. Um, the campaign that I want to talk about on today's episode is uh, it's a 57-session-long campaign that I ran between January of 2020 through June of 2021. So it's been finished and resolved for over a year now at this point. So I've had plenty of time to reflect on it. Um, this was the sixth campaign that I had played with a core group of regular friends that I play with, and it was my third time DMing. But this time I was using a brand new setting. Um, every so often, uh, we talk about like experimenting with like new systems, new game systems, stuff like that. But my guys are pretty much fifth edition purists at this point, so we stuck with that one for this as well. Um, nothing really crazy with like Unearth Arcana. Like we kept pretty close to like this core source books for this one nothing too freaky but i will mention that i did do one a completely homebrewed setting two lots of homebrewed items and three i homebrewed every single enemy i didn't take anything like verbatim out of the monster manual which i feel like is kind of unusual but i don't have a lot of other dm friends to like bounce ideas off of, so i don't know how common that actually is yeah that's unusual and in particular homebrewing every single monster is wildly ambitious yeah. and i feel like in fifth edition it's quite a lot of work they have stats implicitly it's... every monster you fight has a persuasion stat somewhere in there yeah and I, I mentioned this is the third campaign that i was the dm for and really a lot of it was informed by mistakes i made in my first two campaigns i dm'd especially with just following things off of like the suggestion challenge ratings for monsters as printed in the monster manual i found were always like consistently too easy for my guys so even when i had only three player characters i found because i think by default the challenge rating formula assumes a party of four human players but even when i had only three players like they were still like running through these things so i came up with <laughs> my own little spreadsheet that i came up with basically i like combat to be quick but consequential so i came up with an approach that i call 
everyone is a glass cannon. So basically, I lower ACs and I lower hit points, but I increase the uh, to-hit attack bonuses and I increase damage in general. So like, attacks are more likely to land, but you're more likely to attack it uh, to land attacks on monsters, and it's going to be a lot swingier and it's going to be a lot more consequential. I feel, but also combat is a lot quicker, so I can get back to moving the session along. That feels like a nice balance for a lot of tables because the default kind of dungeon master's guide implicitly assumes that A, you're doing six or eight combat encounters per long rest, mm-hmm. and B, they're going to take a while to resolve. And there's a certain kind of adventure, like you're wandering through a dungeon or something like that, where you really do want to have, okay, everyone, roll initiative, spend half an hour in initiative, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, grind through a little bit. And the difficulty comes from the fact that people are conserving their resources once per long rest, and mm-hmm. per long rest they have 50 or 60 turns of initiative. Um, but that doesn't always lead to the funnest game, especially no. when you really have a story that's more oriented around you know, exploration, showing them a big world, as exactly. opposed to grinding through a dungeon. Yeah, I don't know if you saw me wincing, but the concept of a 30-minute combat session is like, there's got to be like a good narrative reason for it to be going on that long at my table basically and i understand other groups that's fun for them they like the grind they like the dice rolling and i think there's a place for that but i also have so much other stuff that i want to do and i probably lean more as a more narrative story driven dm when i write my campaigns and i want to get to that part (laughs) so i try not to bog myself up too much with combat yeah speaking of which give us a sense of the narrative and the story in this game so this one, um, hmm. yeah, I guess it's not really a, a spoiler because this is not a campaign that any of your listeners will play. So I can also, <laughs> go through all this. Also, this is a podcast where we talk about how the campaign goes. Yes. And so spoilers are going to have to happen. <laughs> yeah, they're going to have to. And this one is completely done and resolved. So, yeah, I could just tell you everything. I can show everything behind the curtain. Uh, but basically for this one, the overall idea of this campaign was that there was a dark elf NPC named Paolo Ribeiro, that had died unexpectedly pretty recently, I asked my players to write him into their backstories as someone that they were close enough to that they would be willing to travel to his hometown for the funeral. Um, So our first session has everyone meeting up in a graveyard just before the casket is lowered into the ground. And one by one, as the players come up to pay their respects and say their goodbye at the coffin's side, Gabriella, Paolo's wife and now widow, Uh, whispers to each of them that she didn't believe the official story that it was a suicide and she asked them to meet her back at her house later that evening um and that was the first time i did kind of that somber of an entrance like my first two campaigns was just like oh yeah you saw a job listing and you all met up at this tavern like that was a little boring i wanted to try something different this time and the purpose of beginning the campaign at a funeral specifically was kind of twofold um First, I wanted the players to have a natural reason to all be in the same place at the same time rather than just sheer coincidence. Uh, I wanted them to want to be at the place where they first met. And secondly, I wanted them to have a built-in reason to work together. They all shared a common bond through this NPC that was like the center of the campaign. And it increasingly looked like it was a cover-up to a murder as they were following their leads. So I felt that would be a strong enough incentive to keep them working together throughout the duration of the story. And what kind of bonds did they have? Can you give some examples of how they were related to this uh, newly deceased NPC? The players to the NPC? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they didn't really have bonds to each other. This was, I think only two of them had established that they had met the, each other before the campaign started. So <clears throat> for oh. them, it was 
meeting each other a lot for the first time, but their connections were uh, one of them. So this NPC specifically and how he knew so many different people from so many different parts of the world. He was kind of like a, a traveling merchant that could get any kind of like random thing that would be hard to get. This is this is weird. I modeled him after my father-in-law who owns a prop warehouse, a movie prop warehouse down in New Orleans. And he has this giant warehouse that just has aisles of nouns just any noun you can think of he probably has it he has like taxidermied animals he has like old honky-tonk pianos he's got giant fake boulders made of styrofoam that look like they're they weigh 10 tons but they're actually like 20 pounds like he just has any kind of noun you can think of he has and i thought like that'd be an interesting kind of person to basically campaign around i kind of started it with his death spoiler he wasn't actually dead um but this guy was just traveling around all the time getting like any kind of random thing that you can get so one of my players was a centaur fighter she was his personal bodyguard for two years and then they split ways and then right after she split ways she gets a letter hey he's dead so she kind of felt responsible that she wanted to see what was going on with that another character was a different fighter who was basically an adopted son of his that had grown up and moved out and was like oh shit he's dead another player was like his current assistant that was living in the town where the funeral took place um and one of my players was just kind of uh he met him one time at a three dragon ante card tournament and was like hmm i need a special kind of card let me go <laughs> i know who would find this and then he just shows up to the town not knowing that it was a funeral because he his character wasn't invited because he met this guy once and was just like oh this is going on well I might as well stick around to see what's happening. So varying levels of uh, connectedness to this NPC, but it worked out. Wildly varying levels, but yeah. that's kind of a nice balance between asking all your players to come up with bonds that they have with each other, which mm-hmm. can sometimes feel a little artificial, and uh, the kind of you meet at a tavern, you respond to a job board classic adventure. Yeah, and I want something with a little more meat on the bones. And really, that was the only the only restriction I placed on my players was to make a character that had a pal on their backstory. Like, I would have accepted something like, oh, he is my personal rival, and I came to the funeral to gloat and, like, be an asshole about it. Like, I would have taken that. That would have <laughs> met the criteria that I set. But none of them took that up. I wish someone had. But, yeah, other than that, I was pretty make your backstories whatever you want, and I'll make it work. And just to be clear, you dropped in the middle of that a spoiler, which is that Paolo's not really dead. Yes, but the, my party did not find that until roughly, yeah, almost past the halfway point of the campaign. Like, there were, like, little hints, like, um, the way I kind of structured this campaign is that, yes, I had this entire world set up where I had, I think, 13 different countries that I did, like, a lot of unnecessary world building for. But I wanted this campaign to focus on just four, specifically, that were four concentric neighboring countries. And it kind of led them eastward, starting the westernmost one and then moving over. And each country kind of gotten its own quarter of the campaign in duration. Um, the end of it kind of got stretched out a little bit, so the latter two got more attention than the first two, but that was unavoidable. But yeah, they didn't really find out until they were in the third country. They were getting leads. They thought they were finding the person who had killed him. They found that guy, realized it was kind of a body swap situation, and then it was a kidnap situation, and then it's like, oh no, he's still alive. We just have to find him situation. And he ended up being in a tower in a prison in the Feywild. And my, they almost had a complete total party wipe right before they got to his room because of something completely unrelated with one of my player characters like side quests that 
I kind of woke wove his uh, personal backstory into it, and it just happened to be there at the same time. And it just uh, it, like it's basically not to get on too much of a tangent. Basically, one of my players' characters was looking for a necklace that his mother had. Paolo accidentally took it last time he left this guy's house so he's like okay i'm gonna go back find out up how dead so that's what his investment in the story was no i just want my mom's amulet back he finds two other jewels that kind of look like it but they were different and then we find out that they contain the souls of three different succubi triplets that long ago were like causing wars just to like be difficult <laughs> just be messy and uh he found the third one he found his mother's jewel in this tower in the Feywild, and he put the three amulets together which i explicitly warned him not to i gave him plenty of in fiction things like if you put them together the succubi are going to come back to life they came back to life and i gave him like a dc 20 charisma saving throw if you made eye contact with them or you were just completely in lust with them and would attack anyone else on site out of sheer jealousy so two of my players look at the fucking succubi they fail the saves a third player runs into the room looks purposely just see what's going on he fails and it was like my party was fighting each other like i didn't give the actual succubi any attacks so they were just killing each other one room away from paolo <laughs> like so this was going down and that came so close to being a table white because like we were an initiative i had no control over the situation there were no other npcs involved in that initial role initial role that was uh all my players just killing each other but they managed to the two that stayed away and stayed i guess sober <laughs> they managed to subdue the other three but it was a close thing that sounds incredibly close. Um, yeah. Uh, side note, the idea that the um, the motivation for the succubi is just be messy. Just is be something messy. That we need we need more NPCs that they're just yeah. trying to be a bit messy. <laughs> I really like that. I present it. Yeah. It sounds like there was some, quite frankly, a wild level of world building went into this campaign. Yeah. Like an over-the-top level. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the process of building like over a dozen countries for this world? Yeah, that kind of... That wasn't my a total intent when I started that with this. So basically... Oh, man. The majority of the decisions I made while making the setting were informed from the mistakes I made from my first two campaigns, which utilized an earlier world that I just grew to really hate. I was so tired of it. So I guess I wouldn't be given the full picture without discussing what I was hoping to avoid repeating first. Um, between 2016 and 2018, I ran two different campaigns, and one of my buddies also took a turn DMing a campaign with the same setting that I had originally made called Kahale. I went with a Polynesian-sounding name because I wanted that to have a kind of South Pacific vibe across a bunch of different islands, but that very quickly got away from me. Um, what we ended up with instead was about 13 different islands that developed in isolation from each other into distinct nations, and for some reason I felt compelled to throw my players on a boat and play Carmen San Diego. I felt like because I had spent all this time world building that I had to visit each one of these places during the campaign. And it was a mess, predictably. Uh, things were moving way too fast. My players were getting confused. They were like, wait, why did we come here again? And I'd already be planning on whisking them away somewhere else the following week. So I just didn't really give them enough time to flesh out. And I guess this is a sign of my novice world building. It kind of suffered from something I call George Lucas syndrome, where in Star Wars, you have Hoth, which is a planet made entirely of ice, Tatooine, an entire planet of desert, Dagobah, an entire planet of swamps. Like, it just feels cheap to just hand, away, hand wave away, like, biomes and climate effects and just say, like, this entire planet looks exactly the same environmentally, no matter where you are. And I did the same thing in my first setting. Each nation had one distinct, like, environment that defined the place. 
And that was something I was trying to get away from with this new setting. And, oh, man. The other big thing I disliked for my first setting was how I handled the pantheon of gods in that world. Originally, I had eight gods, one for each of the cleric domains outlined in the player's handbook. And I had them as fully fleshed out NPCs with distinct personalities. And they were very involved in mortal affairs. Um, what I had not yet realized is that my boys have a very deep-rooted anti-authoritarian streak that shows up in every campaign we play. They simply do not like NPCs commanding them what to do. Um, so I have these mortal adventurers at like level five, mouthing off to literal deities, and I'm stuck here as a DM debating, like, do I smite them and risk a real-world argument with my friend over how I killed their character, or do I have this god turn the other cheek and laugh it off, which feels really out of character for how, after how I've built them up. Like, it put me in some awkward spots the first few times it happened. So moving forward with my new setting, I simply just did not make the gods characters. I, I didn't even allow them to be sentient. Like, the gods in this new setting are just kind of forces of nature. It's like, oh, I want to talk to the concept of magnetism. I want to talk to the concept of gravity. Like, that's basically how the gods are handled in my setting. Like, you just don't do that. Um, but for this new setting that I used for this third campaign that I'm trying to talk about tonight instead of my older ones... Um, I came up with a new setting. I called Roskell just because you need a name. Uh, I think I, I found Roswell, and I was like, I could do something with that. I thought that was just like a kind of distinct enough name that I could riff off of. Um, it was basically, I knew what I didn't want it to look like more than I knew what I did want it to look like. I wanted a huge supercontinent because I was tired of island, island hopping, and I wanted nations that were close enough to each other to have evolved with shared and complicated <clears throat> histories between them. And I wanted a place that felt realistic with respect to biome placement. Like, I researched how, like, a rain shadow can form a desert if you have a mountain range to the west. Like, that kind of stuff. I don't know that my players noticed it, but I did. And that was important to me. Um, so I needed a map first before I did that. Uh, there are tons of free online map generators, and I certainly did plenty of shopping around, but... Somehow I ended up using this website called Planet Map Generator, very aptly named. Uh, as far as I can tell, it is a personal side project hobby that was created by and is still actively managed by a Danish guy in the University of Copenhagen. Um, it has a bunch of different inputs to generate specific stuff, like you can change the map projection type, the color scheme, contour lines, how to handle drawing coastlines and stuff like that. So I just riffed off of a ton of different variables, hit the random seed button enough times until I found one I liked, I exported this huge BMP file. I think it was, oh man, it was like, it was a couple gigs. Like, it was absurdly large. I took that, I converted it to a PDF. I uploaded it to AutoCAD because I uh, am an engineer by trade. So I have like 15 years of AutoCAD experience under my belt. I can dream in AutoCAD. So I, it was easy, but it was definitely time consuming because I hand drew hand drafted rather the borders of the countries as I imagined them over the source map image. Uh, by hand, up really close detail, especially the coastlines. But in retrospect, this probably would have taken like 10 seconds if I knew how to use Photoshop and the Magic Lasso tool, but I went with what I knew. So I had my layers, I had my borders, I set up transparent hatches, and then I just threw down a bunch of labels where I thought cities would naturally form if given the chance. Yeah, so to clarify, about halfway through that, you said it was easy. It just not sound easy. <laughs> um, it's relative, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's easy compared to, um, 
I don't know if I had to do like narrative world building for like a big novel that I knew a lot of people were going to look at and scrutinize a lot closer than just five players that are just kind of want to roll some dice. I would probably put a lot more effort into it than I did, which is not to say I didn't put effort in. But I mean, the good news is that now you're talking about it on a podcast, and so more people are going to so have more a people are going to look at it. it. Uh, and I absolutely would like in... to use this setting. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, I would like to use this forward. setting again if I were to, because there's plenty I didn't use. Obviously, I, I had a ton that we didn't visit, and I already have ideas percolating about like what I would go through again. I'd probably use the same format. I'd probably like limit it to just like three or four countries, but just not reuse any of the ones that I've already done because my players already have a feel, a vibe for how those countries were. I feel like I did spend enough time giving them each their own character. Let's talk a little bit more about that then. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the map, which we'll, we'll figure out how to post it on social media. It's mm-hmm. a little bit, um, it feels like a bad idea to talk too much about a map. Yeah, on, on <laughs> yeah um, I get that. But it is genuinely impressive. We will figure out a way Thank to you. make sure the audience can see it. It It is detailed. It has a lot of countries. Each of them seems to really have their own distinct vibe. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that? I am... One of those, I guess, I, I also feel like I'm in a minority with this among D&D players. I hate generic, completely intentionally made up fantasy names. Like, I don't know, Rivendell. Or just like any, anything Tolkien-esque. It's just like, or anything in really old school high fantasy. It's just like, okay, here's a name that has like no vowels in it. It's just a mess of concepts. Like, I hate that. So I find it's a lot easier to lean on real world etymologies and naming conventions. So... Maybe this is cheating, but I kind of leaned on not basing each of my countries off World War countries in terms of their character, but I definitely borrowed a lot of names. Like my campaign where this funeral happened started in a country called Praganza, which was kind of very Portuguese named, uh, Portuguese town names. <laughs> like it also helps me when my players are in a city somewhere let's say they're in my country of Ensenada which was kind of Mexican flavored I guess Um, if they're being frisky with me and they're like oh what's this random guard's name like I'm not going to have the guard's name off the top of my head but I can pick a generic Mexican name off the top of my head I'm not ruining the flow like oh his name is uh," and then I have to like pull up another tab pull up fantasynamegenerator.com which every DM should be using but I could just say his name is Pedro like you you get the message and then we're not messing up the flow and that helps me on the fly but I also helped, it, I feel like it does help set up my larger story to just like not be spending so much time on names. And does this sound like a name for someone that would also be in this country? No, I could just drop a bunch of Mexican names or a bunch of French names in this town. Like there's an, a built in consistency that my players will come to understand and not have to question. They're not like, well, that doesn't sound like a, a Muronan name. Like, is not a real country, but you get that it's kind of French. So, like, that's all, I, I'm, that's all I'm trying to get from my players. And do you feel like having that consistency helped your players in terms of uh, keeping the immersion or was also kind of to make sure that you as the DM didn't have to stop and look things up or generate names? I don't think it hurt. And yeah, my first and foremost goal is always just maintaining flow. Um, I yeah, I guess we haven't mentioned this yet. I have only ever played D and D in person once. In God, this was like 2014. Now this is a long time ago, but that was with a different group of people. That was the first time playing D and D. I had no idea what was going on. But eventually, like once I started getting more involved into it, I looked at the rules. I started up with my current group of friends that I play with. And we're spread out all over the country. Like, I got buddies in 
North Carolina. I got people in Louisiana. Like we're spread out all over the place. So we've always played digitally. We've mm-hmm. messed around with like Google Hangouts and Skype. Now we, now we do Discord. But like we've evolved. So especially when like COVID happened, lockdowns that didn't stop us at all. Like we that's business as usual for us. So um, we. I forget the original point of this question. Why I was going down this way. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what's the question? Oh my god! What was the question? Yeah, what was the question? I can keep going. Basically, it didn't stop us. <laughs> I'll keep going. It, it didn't stop us, and we were always playing digitally. Um, oh, for for immersion, basically. Yeah. I'm always trying to maintain the flow, and it would be so distracting if like they were there and if someone if i saw someone physically at my table like take out their phone while i'm talking like that would mess me up so bad i'm so glad that i don't have to see that because we don't play with our cameras on so i may be able to just keep me my flow going and yeah picking up with these names does help with the immersion i don't think it hurts but really the biggest thing and playing remotely does help with this we usually play on uh roll 20 whenever we're not actively in combat or on a battle map or something like that i will usually have a background image as like a resting screensaver of sorts that kind of conveys what i think this current area that the party is in looks like so over the years i've kind of saved a ton of generic like digital landscape images from like tumblr and art station deviantart and like pinterest and stuff like that so i have this big database where i'm like okay tonight they're going to be in a desert let me look through all my desert pictures or here is uh they're going to be in a kind of middle eastern themed city let me pull up from my database and see what and then i have that resting in the background and it kind of helps with description and my players have specifically told me that helps with them visualizing the vibe of a certain location whenever we're in it. In this, and it helps me without taking up too much time. Uh, I'm able to keep the session going without having to go too in detail of like what this place physically looks like because they're looking at it. We've been talking quite a lot about the world your players are in. Mm-hmm. And they had this kind of this mystery plot almost to unravel. Yeah. What did that look like? How did they move through and interact with the world? Pardon me. <laughs> Let me try that again without yeah. burping real loudly in the middle. I'll be here. So we've been talking about the world building you've been doing, and mm-hmm. this is a campaign where your players are effectively trying to solve a mystery. What does it look like as they move through that world? Like, how do they interact with it? How do you show them the world building you've done and also kind of move the story forward? The world building and like there is so much under the hood that never came up. Like I came up with like demographic breakdowns for each country and I came up with like <laughs> language families and stuff like that. Like it was it was too much. Uh, but the players don't see a lot of that. It comes up when it's relevant, but I didn't go out of my way to volunteer information apropos of nothing. Because, again, my first priority when running a session is to just keep things moving. I want to make sure my friends have fun. Uh, I might do a little bit of info dumping the first time a party comes to a new city or town, but I try to keep it concise. Uh, Something I hate doing, and I think everyone is guilty of this at one point or another, is a situation where the party is going somewhere new. The DM says, can you guys roll a history check to see if you know anything about this place? And unless the entire party gets bad rolls, which, like, never happens you're still going to tell them everything you were going to tell them anyway. And then you just say it to the player who got the highest role. And then they just say, okay, I tell the rest of the party that like Mm -hmm. cut out the middleman, just like give them 
a little concise like this is what everyone knows about this place if you mm-hmm. want to go a little in deep, uh, a little more in depth about a specific uh building or like does this local politician's name sound familiar to my character then i'll do a history role but for the most part i just tell them baseline here's what you need to know about this town here's what your character would already know about it i try to keep that kind of limited for their aspect but they do see a lot of local flavor i guess is the best way to put it um without going into too much detail i say that last time didn't i um this setting and this campaign specifically began two years after a pretty big war that involved all four of the countries that the campaign actually went through it was kind of a three-on-one situation excuse me i'm not used to talking this much It was kind of a three-on-one situation in that one of the the countries, that the country that the campaign actually began in with the funeral, Pergansa, was kind of an instigator, invaded their easternmost neighbor, who was kind of a smaller nation, appealed to its its two eastern uh, neighbors for help, and then the, the instigators kind of got their asses kicked. <laughs> and it was kind of a bad situation. They called it the Senator's War because the local senators in Pergansa wanted to expand into the fertile, like, landscaping um, agriculture land that their easternmost neighbor had. And it was pushed by a lot of wine barons that owned the very expensive wine country in the north of Pergadza. So there were, like, some socioeconomic factors. Like, this wasn't, like, oh, where the bad guys were invading. Like, there was a reason. I don't know that my players care too much, but when they were traveling through this country that had just been war-ravaged, I mentioned, like, yeah, you're not seeing a lot of men. It's mostly, like, old people, women and children. Uh, you see a lot of buildings haven't been repaired. The closer you get to the border, a lot of the wineries and, like, vineyards have been abandoned. And they're just, like, highwaymen. So, basically, the north of this country was kind of like a Wild West vibe. Uh, they were able to see that. They were When they tried leaving that country and going through the border, they saw a whole refugee crisis that was going on. So, like, they saw little tidbits when it became relevant hyper-locally. But I didn't just say, like... Oh, yeah, you pick up a newspaper and you hear this is happening on the complete opposite side of the world right now. Like, that wasn't relevant for them. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that sort of uh, detail in world building or in describing a scene mm-hmm. helps flesh things out without reading a Wikipedia page just effectively <laughs> to your players. I could have written one, but yeah, they didn't ask for that. <laughs> But as they go through these settings, and as they get these kind of small glimpses of what happened in the past, are they having the opportunity to interact with NPCs and form those bonds? Or are most of the dynamics happening within the party, and the party together is traveling and experiencing these new places? I suppose it's more happening within the party, just because by the sheer way that this campaign was laid out, it was kind of a steady eastward march across borders, as the party kept getting clues as to what actually happened to Paolo and where their next lead might be. Uh, because of that, they didn't really have a consistent base of operations to head back to. They had no stronghold or sanctuary, and they were just continuously on the move and meeting new people all the time. So they were interacting with PCs, NPCs, but they were only ever around for like two or three sessions before we were on to the next place. I only had three consistent recurring NPCs that kind of helped them tie down to the larger story. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them I liked, one of them was cool, one of them I absolutely hated. Uh, I just, briefly, uh, the first one that I hated, I hated this character, but it's on me. Um, he's a young, dark elf man named Cristiano, 
party basically adopted him. I hated this character. They loved him, so that's why he's, he stuck around so much. Basically, they pretty early on in the campaign, they found him on the side of the road with a broken down wagon. Uh, he was all by himself. He was acting funny, so they outnumbered him. They snooped around. They found inside his his wagon, he was hiding a coffin with the body of a dark elf woman inside it. Things got pretty tense kind of quickly, but he was bullied into explaining that this body was the daughter of a very powerful senator. She was under the effects of a false death spell. He had the antidote, and he was smuggling her body to a port city so she could wake up and they would flee the country together because she wanted to escape all these post-war sanctions that were placed on her country. Uh, Party ended up helping him, but when this daughter woke up, she kind of blew off Cristiano as a servant without even thanking him and hopped on the ferry. She had prearranged to take only her away. Uh, Cristiano was physically heartbroken. He thought they were, like, eloping. Uh, Party took him under their wing, and he just kind of would provide little tidbits of information throughout the campaign. Uh, He also kind of became a training wheel set, I guess, because my boys were going down a lot early on in that campaign. We were going to the death saves. We didn't have any healers. No one had a medicine proficiency. So I was like, all right, I'm going to give this guy... He's going to take some training from the party's wizard, and I gave him... um, spare from dying and cure wounds just as something but like i meant to like have him break off the from the party later and that didn't happen he got kidnapped twice he got separated he got lost and then at one point he just straight up asked to leave and the party wouldn't let it happen so he stuck around until the very end and i was not happy about that but he was a consistent npc uh the party had fun so i guess he was a success second recurring character was gabriella paolo's widow she was back in the town where the funeral took place, Santo Isidoro. Uh, she would occasionally reach out to the party. She would send letters in advance of where they were expected to be next. She would ask for updates, making sure they were being safe, but eventually they noticed her letters started making less sense. I did a simple cipher where the first letter of each sentence spelled out, I'm being watched. And once the party figured that out, they started responding in kind. They would write letters that would also have like a responding message. Um, a little after they worked that out, though, uh, she went missing. She stopped responding to their letters. Uh, but the party was literally two countries away at this point. So this brought in our third recurring NPC. Uh, one of my players was playing a Battlemaster fighter who was a human from the second country, Ibenu, the one that was initially invaded. Uh, he worked into his background that this fighter belonged to a secret organization called Spectres who weren't necessarily criminals, but they were discreet smugglers who focused on, quote, recovering artifacts from old ruins that no one had any legitimate claim to and selling them to interested buyers so Paolo was kind of an adoptive uncle to this fighter uh, the people in the specters kind of communicated using these uh, magical messenger crows so whenever a crow appeared and landed on this player's shoulder everyone knew there was an update on the situation because he asked this third npc nazir another specter to kind of scope out and try to find out what had happened to gabriella and they only met him in person at the very end of the campaign, after he checked uh, Gabriella down to a local gang hideout that she went to seeking protection. But, yeah, the, other than those three, it was really just NPCs. I was flying through them. Like, they would show up, and then we'd be on to the next place. Not a lot of continuity. I would probably change that if I were to do another campaign, just to, like, anchor them a little more. But I did have fun, and we threw a lot of different characters. And I, if I could tell one of them wasn't working and the party wasn't, like, connecting with one, he was only going to be around for another session anyway. So, like, I didn't worry too much about it. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like the players themselves came in with PCs who did have near, 
they had backstories and also you had side quests that were specific mm. to or resonant with those backstories. Yeah, and we had there were relationships, there were there were tensions. There were definitely sessions where I as a DM can just sit back for like 10, 15 minutes and not say a word because my players are just like bickering with each other. Like there were there were some connections. Like it wasn't all bad, but I I mostly remember the arguments. <laughs> But, I mean, they were interacting. They were involved. They were active with each other. And that's better than silence. That's better than dead air. What were they arguing about? Oh, no. (laughs) See, I'm afraid to say too much because I feel like I'm going to give the link out and they're going to listen to this and they're going to accost me after this. But, um... Yes, please (laughs) spread the link to this episode everywhere. Uh, Tell all your friends to listen to Campaign Spotlight. Nice plug. Um, I think one of the biggest fights... Man, it really, a lot of them came down with our barbarian, who was a, uh, he was a dwarven teenager battlemaster, the the dwarven-specific subclass, and he was kind of, you know, going through puberty, starting to rage all the time, didn't know what was going on, was looking for his birth parents to, like, get, learn how to control it, and he made some in-character decisions that made sense, but, like, it kind of would set the party back like no why did you attack that guy well because i'm a barbarian and like it would just cause trouble like in fiction stuff it was never like out of fiction like i think you are making a stupid decision it was just like it made sense within fiction um but i wouldn't say it was a problem so much as it was something that came up enough that i'm still thinking about it over a year after this campaign is finished um that doesn't sound like a problem though that almost sounds like engaged role-playing it is engaged role-playing, yes, and it's memorable because I'm still talking about it. <laughs> Absolutely. And in this world, the players really had, a, it sounds like, a pretty specific sense of what their PCs were like and how they interacted with the world. Did this sometimes conflict with the world-building you were doing or the, the settings <laughs> that you were bringing them to? If they came in saying, ah, I am someone who goes into these rages, you know, and, and had these um, backstories and these attributes that they'd built separate from what you'd built. There weren't too many conflicts. There are two examples of conflicts with my established world building that I can think of. And the way I dealt with them was either I just fully acquiesced or I just ignored it without contradicting. So basically... Um, I was about 80% done with the world building for this campaign before the campaign started when one of my players said, I want to play a centaur. I don't know where this came from, but they were dead set on playing a centaur. I had not accounted for that at this point. But I that I said, yeah, any from the source material we could we could use. So that, that was in one of the books. I can't remember which one. But I said, okay, I got to fit centaurs into this world. And they mentioned, like, oh, yeah, also the centaurs' uh, mortal enemy are fawns. So it's like, okay, that's the second race I got to account for. So I basically threw them all the way up in the very north in the country of Halma that was kind of, it was a little on the nose uninspired, but it was kind of Scandinavian-themed in, like, the fjords and stuff like that. They would be up there, and most of the campaign took place in the south near the equator. So I explained to this player, you're not going to run into a lot of other (laughs) centaurs. A lot of people are going to be gawking at you accessibility is going to be a problem, but this didn't dissuade the player, and it actually became relevant in our very first session. Um, after the funeral, the party was tracking down two of the gravediggers from the funeral that they overheard talking about going back later that night to dig up the coffin again and steal some jewelry off of Paolo's body. Uh, party followed them to a two-story house, 
and we're immediately presented with the question, how much does a centaur weigh? And can these old wooden stairs hold that much weight? And after some quick on-the-fly research, I ruled that the centaur wouldn't be able to walk up the stairs without risking the integrity of the building. Uh, but it ended up working out because one of the gravediggers jumped out from the balcony and tried running down a side street, but centaurs have a base walking speed of 40, so that chase scene didn't last very long. So it was a discrepancy that kind of I was able to play to that player's strength sometimes. The only other instance I can think of a player conflict with my world building uh, was, again, with my dwarven uh, barbarian player who would often like wax nostalgic about his homeland of Ensenada. Um, what started out as a passing joke turned into a recurring mention of this spa resort town in the country's interior that was famous for its bathhouses and natural springs and uh, everyone was expected to be naked all the time. I, as a DM, had no interest in running a session in this kind of town. I never thought <laughs> its existence. But there came a point when the party was passing through this country and they had a time-sensitive lead on Paolo's location that required them either continue moving eastward while this, uh, or this magical naked town would have been to the north, so there was a discrepancy. They had to make a decision and it ended up being a four-against-one vote. <laughs> and the campaign simply just did not have time to explore this place. But I never shot down the idea and said, no, that's not real. So maybe... A future campaign down the line will visit this place, but I didn't feel like I wanted to give time to it then. You are a lot more patient than I am or than most <laughs> DMs I know. If someone says, I'm from a town where everyone's naked all the time, uh, I would invite the other players to roll some kind of history check to learn that that is not, in fact, mm -hmm. the case. Because uh, uh, no way. I also but appreciate that early... Yeah. Oh, go for it. It wasn't incompatible with the story I wanted to tell. So it wasn't like, no, that is the town that the final, final big bad boss is going to be. The you naked be final big bad boss. That would have been something. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. Low AC. What? Base 10. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't conflict with the story I wanted to tell. So I was like, sure, whatever. We're not going to go there. But yeah, you're not wrong. I felt that was a good compromise. That's reasonable. I, I also appreciate that. It's very important to you to keep the flow going. Always. But you're also not shy about taking the time to figure out how much a centaur would weigh. Mm, that was very quick. Yeah, I can't remember to do it again. But I just remember anytime stairs came up. And uh, so, like, we have a Discord channel. And I'd have, like, all my notes up and doing stuff like that. And whenever stairs would come up, all of them would start giggling. And then I'd have to, like, pull up the Discord. And then there was a recurring gif of this guy, like, riding a pony horse just going down a flight of stairs and just eating shit and they would always drop that in whenever the center player had to go downstairs uh, it was just i whenever i would hear them giggling, giggling uh, i knew what it was going to be before i even pulled it up um but yeah the whole the thing with the centaur it did kind of play into a big reveal at the very end basically the players never did run into another centaur the entire campaign until the very last session when they finally meet the big bad guy they corner him and they realize his personal bodyguard was my centaur player's childhood friend. And the first other centaur. They, so, like, that player kind of felt like I was giving the other players a little too much, like, side quests. I was, like, going into their personal backstories a little too much. And this player wasn't getting anything until the very end. And, like, it was, like, honest to God, 10 seconds of silence. Like, oh, fuck. I, had not, I thought you forgot about me, basically. And I was like, no, I didn't forget about you. I was just, I was just waiting for this to a point where it made sense. And... That was a pretty mem memorable moment. It was like, are we going to do this? Or like, are we going to fight my childhood best friend? Or what are we going to do? It definitely 
and especially it happened on a ship that was actively sinking so that was also time sensitive so that kind of added to the pressure that was that was a good reveal that i'm proud of ship that is actively sinking is a great place for a final boss battle listen the number one rule of my campaigns is that if you are on a boat something bad is going to happen i feel like that about real world boats i (laughs) I don't go on them for a reason i mean you're out in the middle of nowhere no one is coming to save you you can't leave so i'm gonna have you do the the encounter i want to run yeah i'm thinking of a situation where they were taking a ferry and one of our halfling players he was a rogue kind of got not seduced but he was led to the back by another halfling it was the first one he'd seen in a long time and she ended up being a halfling trafficker because in this setting yeah there is some people that have a superstition that halflings just bring good luck just by having them nearby so sometimes they just get kidnapped and our boy got kidnapped they threw him on a lifeboat and the rest of the party realized and so they had to get the other lifeboats then chase after them and they had to ditch their ferry ride where they were going yeah but that was that's really tame the other time I put him on a boat, there was an eco-terrorist situation. That was kind of messy. But yeah, that's boats are fun in D&D. So there were a lot of side quests. It was not oh, yeah. just figuring out what's happening with Paolo. They're going no. east, and they're just encountering problems and crises the whole way. The whole way. Like uh, This kind of wraps into the world-building discussion. Uh, when they were in the third country, in Sonata, um, there is a very public, very famous, I guess infamous rule that this country had it's a culture that basically has an ingrained fear of magic so if anyone Mm. is caught casting magic in public without express permission whether they're a citizen or a foreigner they are immediately conscripted into the army so that kind of added a little uh layer of difficulty for our wizard player like okay i don't want to get caught casting a spell because i'll get conscripted to the army and then i can't do the rest of the campaign without a jailbreak from the military uh but that ended up there was some side mission where they ended up in a small town that was basically like a refuge of spellcasters that didn't want to get conscripted, but they just kind of hold up in this town. And then the military was coming to get them. So they had to stage a defensive siege. But then my dwarven barbarian character was like, I don't want to fight my countrymen. Like, these are my people. I don't want to fight this. So there's some conflicts, but there was another reason why they were there. There was another lead that they were following up on Paolo at that point. That was the time when they realized that, no, he was still alive. They asked an auger to ask like they were trying to connect with the soul in the afterlife and they're like i can't find him he's not dead so that's when they kind of like oh shit that, that kind of added so there's a reason for them to be in that town but i also flavored in this side quest that was going on so one thing that it comes up in many campaigns is this idea that if you're a magic user you have to be secretive about it in some way that someone's out to get you and rules is written spells have verbal somatic material components Hiding spellcasting, unless you have subtle spell or something like that, is all but impossible. How did you handle that in your game? Um, it didn't super come up. Like, I, I get that. There's, I just mentioned this whole country where if you get caught casting spells in public, you get shipped to the military. But most places were pretty blasé about it. The way I kind of flavored it is that if you were, like, a wizard that could cast more than, like, two or three spells, that was a big deal. Like, most people, like, knew magic existed. It was kind of around, like, it was kind of a situation where, like, I know a guy, everyone knew a guy who could do magic, but, like, he could do, like, one or two spells. That was, like, a big deal. So, like, a player character doing, basically, my one player was a wizard. He would have been a big deal if people knew, like, the full extent of it. So he never really tried to hide it. There was one situation, he did kill a bunch of cops in an alleyway. He did a fireball because he was trying to get away, but they were chasing him. I forget why they were doing that. Oh, Oh, uh, this was a town. It was like a 
a tourist trap kind of town like think like orlando but there were two different thieves guilds that were kind of having a secret turf war at the same time because they wanted to pickpocket the most tourists and stuff like that they ended up capturing one of them one of the thieves guild leaders and tried turning him into the police but the police were crooked they were like on that thieves payroll so then they were like okay yeah we're not gonna let you leave because you just took in one of our guys so then they had to leave and then yeah he just did a fireball in the middle of the street but it was like one o'clock in the morning so like no one noticed um when other times and he was this one wizard was really my only spellcaster in the party because we had two fighters we had a barbarian and a rogue and then the wizard and then Christiana. There was always Christiana, but I hated Christiana. <laughs> Christiana had firebolt, cure wounds, and spare the dying. That was it. That's all I was going to give him. Really, that's all you need. That's and all you need. <laughs> so this is a campaign in a... I don't want to say a mundane world, but this is a world that kind of... Resum- it has not a lot of prevalent magic. Uh, militaries fight with weapons. People travel by boats. It's not that yeah, full-on say... intense magic. But in the end, they ended up in the Wild. How did you balance this, I guess, this reveal that there's another plane of existence with fairies on it? I feel like, well, I also did not use the conventional, like, as-written Feywild descriptions. I kind of had my own spin on it. Uh, I was kind of very heavily inspired by Area X from Annihilation, which... I still have not read the book. I own the physical copy. I just haven't got around to it. But I'm sp- talking specifically of the movie with Natalie Portman. Just like, I wanted a Feywild that was very feral and dangerous and mysterious. And you didn't know what was really going on, but you knew this wasn't normal. Mm. I wanted to like lay more into like an eerie vibe. And I kind of spun it that everyone kind of knew that it existed, but it was extremely dangerous and a lot of people didn't come back to it. Um, the way I had them enter it, I had them had there was a certain woods outside of a very sketchy town that it was kind of known as like a really easy way to get into it and you had to intentionally get lost and the, the way I kind of added a little bit of difficulty of this is that I had Cristiano chicken out and know where he was going the whole time so like they all woke up one by one in the Feywild and they realized like Cristiano's not with us what do we do they just assumed that he wasn't there I just didn't want to run in that session because i have enough to prepare for i don't want to also keep track of a different entire player character sheet for a character i don't want to play so he tapped out for that little mini arc but they went into the feywild they were meeting all kinds of feral creatures that were like mimicking the sounds of the people that they killed so they would hear someone crying for help in the middle of like a briar patch and then they realized that it's trying to eat them and just mimicking the sounds to lure them in stuff like that uh how did i make them leave they had to go to the top of the tower that Paolo was being held in and they had to jump into a lake and it was like a pretty far jump and like a lot of them did not want to do it but they eventually all went through and then they would like wake up in like the shore outside of that sketchy town so like they were back in the same place I didn't like drop them on the complete opposite side of the world that would have been a little too hard to account for logistically and I wanted to keep the story going it is a testament to your abilities as a game master that your players were afraid to have their player characters jump out of a tall building. <laughs> like, there's clearly a certain physicality you've imbued the story with if they're actually afraid of heights for their characters. I think I also ruled it that they couldn't take long rests because they didn't really understand how the passage of time was happening. And also, this was immediately after a big boss fight, fighting the warden that was protecting Paolo, which was immediately following the big succubus fight where they just all beat the shit out of each other. So they were, like, already on, like, their last legs. They were, like, not... They didn't have any health potions. 
they didn't have their dedicated healer. Cristiano wasn't there. So, like, that specifically was a kind of, like, ooh, this is getting a little a little dicey, a little dangerous at this point. And also, they just found Paolo, who was, like, emaciated because he's been held in a prison for, in fiction, I think it was, like, two months. But time works funky in the Feywild, so who knows how actually he was actually there. I did have a point at some point in the campaign where they had a decision where they could either go after the Duke that kidnapped Paolo or go and save him himself. And they went to go save him first, but had they gone the other route, I did have a plan that basically the real Paolo would have died and been replaced with like a fungal doppelganger, like uh, what happened with Oscar Isaac and, <laughs> and uh, Annihilation. But they ended up saving him first, so that didn't happen. Okay, we're going to have to tag this episode for Annihilation spoilers, I guess. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> but also, that is an incredible twist. And then when they came back from the Feywild, this is towards the end of the campaign. This is when they'd be confronting the Duke? Yeah, they had him, Paolo. So basically, yeah, I guess I haven't touched this yet. The reason Paolo got abducted in the first place was a lot of geopoliticking that was going on. Um all the way in the east, the easternmost part of the campaign that it reached, there was, uh, it's one country as viewed from the outside, but internally there's kind of like a very difficult succession crisis going on over the past, like, couple decades. It's a gnomish country called Le Muro that was split into four internally, and they each stake a claim on their other three neighbors, but no one really wanted to make the first move. It was basically a four-way Mexican standoff. Like, they had an arms buildup, there was an arm race that was going off. But no one wanted to make the first move because they would get invaded by someone else. So in order to trigger this war, that basically this one duke, Duke Alençon, he was of the mindset that this war was going to break out eventually. The sooner yeah. it happened, the quicker it happened, the better it would be. So Paolo was personal friends with one of his rival dukes. He kidnapped him, staged the death with the fake body double that was in the, in the casket at the beginning at the funeral. Um, and he wanted to start a crisis and basically the the party did have to stop that friend duke from declaring war and that was another very dicey session because the way i spun it is that it, declaring war is a very like hefty decision on a sure. state so this country the subset of le muro had a uh, tradition where basically the duke would have to go down in a, a very long very silent hallway that was magically silenced which became relevant for our spellcaster um it was called the the Hall of Reflection, and I kind of modeled it after the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles because I was leaning very heavy into that French influence. Um, but he was just walking, and he's looking at murals and pictures and statues of like horrific scenes of previous wars, just to, like make sure you know what you're doing before you declare war. And at the end of the hallway, he would come out onto a balcony and he would blow a giant horn that would signal the beginning of the war. The party got there as he's already walking, so he's moving like five feet a turn, but he has like a 300 foot lead on them this is like an 800 foot long hallway like it was a massive map i had to do very skinny but very long and <laughs> they're chasing after him it's magically silenced so they can't just like reach out and call to him but there were defense mechanisms that he was only supposed to be there alone when it detected the party was in there some of the statues were coming to life and they were like fucking up these party my, my party uh but eventually they did manage to get him tap on his shoulder and at this point, they had Paolo with him, so then he could turn around and say, hey, my friend is not dead. I do not have to declare war. <laughs> so, yeah, that happened before the big bad guy. Oh, man. I, I, there's so much about this campaign I forgot. <laughs> it's all coming back to me now, though. That sounds like an incredibly cool gauntlet challenge. That was a very fun, unique challenge that, yeah, my players are still talking about to this day. Mike, it's been absolutely fascinating to hear about this campaign 
and the challenges you put your players through. <laughs> Do you have any closing thoughts about how things went? I, yeah, it's been over a year now since it's finished and wrapped up, so I've had enough time to reflect on it. Um, really, the only thing I would do differently was to not introduce Cristiano, because I was not having fun. Even though, yeah, my players did have a lot of enjoyment over it, it took enjoyment away from me, and I'm a player too. Like, the, the DM's fun 100%. is relevant. Yeah. Even though, like, a lot of, like, official published material is very player-oriented, and I, maybe this is just me, I don't feel like DMs get enough support officially. Um, I, my, my fun, my enjoyment is, invo- is important as well. Using, uh, what tools do I use? I, I use, <laughs> I, I mentioned my spreadsheet at the top for my homebrew of every single, uh, character, every, every single monster that I throw at my, at my players. Um, I use any dice, which is just an automatic, like probability dice roller, which helps with my homebrew. Like, okay, if one, like, what is a damage probability distribution curve for like 10d8 look like what is the average and like what's the spread on like that that's any dice i use that uh fantasy name generator obviously i use that um planet map generator was a generic uh danish website i mentioned at the top that helped with setting my overall uh world building process which really was the starting point from everything like i had to have a map before i get started but that's just me personally i take a a bottom-up approach with my world building and in order to share all that with my players i uploaded everything into worldanvil.com which is kind of like a a mini build your own wiki kind of situation like you can make links and articles that all like cross-reference each other that's where i uploaded my uh map to where i hope you include in the the description for this episode absolutely Uh, we use Roll20. I know there are competitors out there. I haven't uh, been able to convince my guys to give that a shot yet. Um, yeah, those are the main tools that I use for everyday prep before a session. We'll definitely link to those in the show notes. I mean, yeah. especially the world map generator, which is yeah. genuinely <laughs> something I've never seen before, and it is it's extremely powerful. Cool. That was my favorite one of the ones I've looked at because there are a lot out there and maybe there are more now since I, what, 2018, 2019 is when I started looking at this new setting that I wanted to build. Maybe there are competitors out now, but that one was very powerful for what I was looking for. That was right up my alley. Is there any media, any shows you were watching, books you were reading, books you were buying but not reading in the case of Annihilation uh, that inspired or informed this world building? Probably. I mean, there's probably a ton of influences and generic tropes that I picked up on and incorporated without even realizing, but uh, there was one specific movie I modeled an entire uh, mini-arc around. Uh, so early on in the campaign, party had some loose clues pointing them to a town in Ibenu, the next country over, which meant they had to not only cross the border, but they had to cut through some war-ravaged part of the wine country. That was where some of the very last battles of the last war took place. Uh, this is kind of a lawless region with refugees trying to get out there are roaming bands of bandits and highwaymen uh one day parties hold up inside of a tavern in the middle of nowhere trying to beat the heat before they can continue traveling at night when it's cooler uh there's a very obvious gang taking out most of the space in the tavern and just generally making a nuisance and making the staff and other patrons uncomfortable uh all of a sudden everyone hears a booming voice come from outside basically saying this is the sheriff and i have a warrant for the arrest of dulce the dagger uh, this is the leader of the gang who was just two tables away from the party. So they have to decide in that moment, do we join in and help with the arrests? Do we help this gang fight the law? 
do we try to stay out of it and hope no one thinks that we're with the gang? Ultimately, they decided to end up helping the law, but during the fight, the sheriff is hurt really badly, and all of her deputies are down for the count. So she deputizes the party and basically says, we don't have any prisons out here that are strong enough to hold her. You need to take Dulce north of the border, where she's also wanted, and where her gang won't be able to break her out. So for the next two sessions, the party has to deal with this leader, Dulce, offering them gold and whatever else they want if they let her go. They have to deal with her gang catching up and trying to rescue her. They have to deal with a rival gang that tries to kill her, tries to kill their prisoner for revenge. And Dulce is basically saying, like, hey, you know, I can hold my own in a fight. If you let me go, I'll help you. Uh, they, just, like, multiple factors going on. Ultimately, they do get her north of the border and manage to collect a bounty on her. But this whole mini-arc was just, like, a very bastardized take on the plot of 310 to Yuma and that kind of helped because I was already picturing this part of the map as kind of having a Wild West vibe so that just helped me lean even more into that and that was yeah that was a good very direct example of media that I lifted and I don't think anyone picked up on it but once I explained it after the fact they're like oh yeah I can see that not gonna lie, I had no idea where that was going in terms of what media <laughs> you were referencing. Yeah. So I, I would have, I would have uh, accepted that as a player as uh, your <laughs> creation as well. Oh, that's good. Yeah, maybe I just don't tell anyone next time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I came up with this. Yeah, totally. See how far you can take it. Just give them the plot of like an Avengers movie or something like that, and uh, see if they accept it. I did want to do another one. I never got to. I wanted to do a subplot that was kind of around uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where there's like this very dangerous weapon, a specific single weapon that had a lot of history around it that they had to like deliver to like someone else, but then it gets kidnapped, so then they have to like find this person that's wielding this very powerful weapon that like they're not a good fighter, but because they have this weapon, they're a big deal. Like that could have been something. Maybe I'll use that next time. Yeah, Mike's players, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> be on the lookout for that weapon. <laughs> Coming to a campaign to you maybe two or three years from now. <laughs> This seems like a great place to stop, Mike. It's been it's been fascinating to hear about your world uh, and everything you put your players through. Thank you so much for coming on. It's fun revisiting something that I haven't been able to look back on in a while. I did put a lot of work into this, and it's nice to look back on it after the fact and realize, like, no, I did do a good job. I'm proud of what I've done. That's all for this week. Thanks, Mike, for taking the time to chat with us about your campaign and for performing the incredible theme music for this episode. I've been Jake behind the mic. And I'm Production Master Riley. And this amulet isn't cursed, I just don't feel like taking it off. Join us next week when we chat about the world-building tabletop game, Microscope. For more on the show, including links to all our social media, visit foldedfrequencies.com slash campaign spotlight.